right, good morning, church. Hey, if you're new with us uh, today, welcome. Really glad you're here. My name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. We've been journeying through the book of Matthew for quite some time. Really, uh, we're hoping to finish in not too much longer, but we've been on this journey together. We have spent some time looking at the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We spent some time unpacking the parables of Jesus. We have seen the miracles of Jesus. We've been a part of the, this preparation for ministry and beyond. We've even spent some time as a church family walking through Jesus' teaching on the end times. And now where we find ourselves is the final hours of Jesus' life. That's really where we find ourselves, these final hours. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do. Now, uh, you know I say that every week. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do. And some of you are like, why do you say that every week? Well, I, I, I know why I say that now, uh, because I, I met with a pastor from Southside Baptist this week. And he shared a quote with me from Charles Spurgeon. Actually, when he told me Charles Spurgeon said it, I didn't believe him. I'm not proud of that. And I Googled it to make sure because it doesn't sound like him. But his church also asked their people to bring their Bibles every Sunday because the quote is, there will come a day, Charles Spurgeon said, there will come a day when there will be no more shepherds feeding sheep. There will only be clowns entertaining goats. Church, pull out your Bibles and let's eat. Okay? Pull out your Bibles and let's eat. Turn me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. That's where we're going to spend some time. We'll get to Matthew in a few minutes, but John chapter 18. Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. How many of you ever saw the show 24? Anybody see that? Yeah, so it starred Kiefer Sutherland, and the show came out, it was so intense, and it really came out... Um, before binge-watching was a thing, it sort of came out before streaming services were really a thing and took off. But if you remember the show, it always started with something like, the following takes place between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. on the night of the presidential primary. Like, that's how it started. And it sort of helped you give some chronology to what was going to happen because so much was packed into one hour of this show. And so it was helping you to understand what was going on. And you might ask, why do we need that here? Because by the time we as a church family get to the cross, the teaching of the cross, it will have been 22 weeks since the triumphal entry. We're just blazing through Matthew, aren't we? Right? It'll be 22 weeks. So by the time we get there, because the triumphal entry, I taught that January 15th. And so while us, it's taken us 22 weeks in the life of Jesus, seven days. That happened seven days ago. And so it helps us understand what's happening. 22 weeks for us, real time, seven days. It happened very, very quickly, much like 24. And so in our story, we saw Jesus in the upper room, or what we call the Last Supper. Once they finished the Last Supper, it says they sang a hymn. Judas had already taken off. He was already going to put that plan in motion to betray Jesus. And late that night, about 12.30 a.m., that's when they went on their 1.5-mile walk. Middle of the night, they went for a walk across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. And according to Matthew 26, Jesus prays the prayer... Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not, but, 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 but not my will, 
your will be done. That's what he prays. He says he prays three times. He goes off and prays, and he comes back, and he finds the disciples what? Sleeping. And he goes back and prays, and he comes back, and he finds the disciples sleeping. And he goes away the third time, and while he's praying the third time, it says that Judas and the mob come out of the sun gate in Jerusalem, walk out of the temple, and they start their journey over to the Garden of the Olive Press to arrest Jesus at about 2 a.m. And this arrest now triggers six trials. I don't know if you realize that, but Jesus was hauled before six juries or six trials. Three of them are religious, three of them are Roman. And all of them, all six are totally illegal. All six are conducted without credible witnesses. All six are without a shred of evidence. They're happening in the middle of the night. They're happening in a hurry because they want a verdict to be rolled out. All of these trials, the ultimate purpose has already been decided. Jesus has got to go. Jesus has to die. And so what we see here is about 2.30 a.m. in the morning, Jesus faces his first religious trial before a guy named Annas. So hopefully you're at John chapter 18 now. I think you're going to be blown away by what you see today. Here's the first trial found in verse 12. You ready? It says, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. So that was last week. Verse 13, They bound him. They brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And so Annas is an interesting figure. He is a former high priest. He's been out of office for about 15 years at this point, but that still makes him an elder statesman. It means he still has influence. When he says something, it's sort of, I'm going to date myself all service, E.F. Hutton. When he speaks, people listen, right? That's kind of how he is. And so he is the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. So his daughter is married to the current high priest. And so because of all that, Annas gets first shot at Jesus. Now, jump down to verse 19. I'll show you something that never really made sense to me until I was in Israel a couple weeks ago. And here's where watching online, if you're watching online, yeah, I'm really sorry. You should be here, I guess, because it's going to be really hard for you. Verse 19 says, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Do you see the problem? So he missed this, because I thought he was talking to Annas, the former high priest. But here it says, the high priest questioned Jesus. So what's happening? Is it a mistake? Do we have a mistake in our Bible? Because if we have a mistake in our Bible, that's a problem. I thought he was talking to Annas, not the current high priest. How is that possible? Well, here's... Here's how it happens. It was never explained to me. So now it's Passover, and Caiaphas, the high priest, has to remain ceremonially clean in order to observe and preside over the Passover celebration. And Jesus is accused of a crime. He's accused of a serious crime. So the question becomes, how can Caiaphas stand in the presence of Jesus who would be unclean without becoming unclean himself. Because if he becomes unclean, he's got to go outside the city. It's seven-day wait before he can get back in. 
That can't happen because he's supposed to observe the Passover celebration and he presides over it. He's supposed to be all a part of the things with this uh, community, but yet he also still has to deal with the religious crimes. Well, here's how. In Caiaphas's house here in the screen behind me, you'll see us looking through a hole in the floor. That's actually Caiaphas's house. We know it. It's an A side. It's absolutely, they said for sure, we know this is Caiaphas's house. And he's got a hole in the floor that looks down into the interrogation chamber. So Caiaphas can be in his house looking down, listening to the interrogation that's happening. It's about 30 feet down where you can stand. It's not a very big room, this interrogation chamber. It's probably eight feet by eight feet, and you stand there. But what's also here is, if you're in the interrogation chamber and you come up about 18 feet, there is seating, and it looks something like this. And the seating is where the Sadducees and the Pharisees can sit up high enough they can remain clean, still listen to what's going on and weigh in. What you'll also notice here is about another five feet up from them, the jailer had a hole in the wall, and they could actually lean in and listen to the verdict as well. So they knew who was going to come their way. So you have all these people who are at this first trial. Annas takes them into the interrogation chamber. Sadducees and Pharisees are up on the second floor listening in. Caiaphas is on the third floor looking down through the hole listening because he has to maintain a distance between them. Does that make sense? Okay, so it says in verse 19, it says, Meanwhile, the high priest from above questioned Jesus through that hole about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. Jesus is speaking up to Caiaphas. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby, one of those in the interrogation chamber, slapped him in the face. That's a bad day. You slapping Jesus? But anyways, is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why are you hitting me? If I'm telling you the truth, why are you hitting me? And I thought, great point. Because in all of Jesus' life, in all of his childhood, in all of his teenage years, in all of his adulthood, all of his ministry of three plus years here on earth, Jesus has never, ever done anything contrary to the word of God. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. He's never done anything contrary to the word of God. Jesus has never committed any sin. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that he was tempted like we were and yet found without sin. The author goes on in Hebrews 7 to say that he is one who is holy. He is blameless. He is pure. He is set apart from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Jesus Christ is sinless. He is God incarnate. He is the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ lived the life that we were supposed to live, but didn't. And he died the death that we should have died, but didn't. Dying in our place. I mean, what a crazy first trial. But look at how this first trial ends. It's verse 24. It says, Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And you're like, this is all messed up. But once you're there, all they did was in the interrogation chamber, they put the ropes back around him and took him up two flights of stairs into Caiaphas's house. Because they've realized that Jesus didn't commit a crime that would 
make Caiaphas unclean. So what, what crimes is that? That would be like murder, uh, walking through a graveyard. That would be adultery. That would be being around a woman during the time of the month, stuff like that. So Jesus hasn't done any of that. And so now, after slapping in the face of Jesus, this exchange is over. And as ties him up, takes him upstairs now to meet face-to-face with Caiaphas in that room where all the people can just sit around, all these Sadducees and Pharisees can sit around and listen to what's going on. Make sense still? Good. One more thing that I, my question I had is, why are all of these people up at 2.30 in the morning? <laughs> like, is this like a Pharisee-Sadducee lock-in? Like, if you think about it, nowhere in Scripture does it say, and they sent a dude out running to wake everybody up to get him to Caiaphas' house. Why is everybody awake? And the answer? Because the plan that Judas has set in motion is happening, just as they've planned out. So now let's flip over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, here comes the second religious trial happening just upstairs now in Caiaphas' house. Face to face. Now, Caiaphas, he's a political figure as well. He's a religious figure, and he's a political figure. So if you're the high priest, that's an interesting gig. So you had the religious side of your job, where you were in charge of all the festivals. You had some stuff to do uh, in the temple. But you also were in charge of the Sanhedrin. You were in charge of the ruling council of Jewish elders. But on the other side, you had a, a Roman side of you where you were getting hooked up financially for keeping everyone in check. Part of your job as the high priest is to keep all the Jews docile, keep everybody happy. And the, the longer you kept them happy, the more Roman money that was funneled your way. So the position of high priest was one of incredible power, but it's one that like one foot's on the dock and one foot's in a boat. If you've never done that, you should try that right? Because it's a hard place to stand. But it is an interesting place, and the high priest role means you have to live in two worlds. And because of that dichotomy, Caiaphas had intense anger towards Jesus. He, Caiaphas, he was in direct opposition to Jesus because Jesus threatened his power. Jesus' teaching and who he was threatened his influence. Jesus threatened his wealth. Jesus threatened his beliefs, threatened his future. Jesus threatened everything. And so Caiaphas is very, very interested in silencing Jesus. And to many, Jesus is still threatening today, isn't he? Jesus is very threatening. Jesus today threatens egotistical power. Jesus threatens self-seeking influence. Jesus threatens greedy wealth and self-centered beliefs. Oh, how people are still threatened by Jesus today. Wouldn't you agree? He is very threatening. And here comes verse 57. It says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So they're now all upstairs, and they're around in seats. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. 
And we're going to look at Peter in just a moment. But verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're looking for false evidence against Jesus. Why? It says, so that they could put him to death. So is there a hidden agenda here? Like, it seems like everything's quite clear. <laughs> Their goal is right out in the open. All of these trials, whether they were religious or they're Roman, the verdict, at least from a religious standpoint, has already been set. What's the verdict? Death. And what they're trying to accuse Jesus of is blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is something that is punishable by death, and it means speaking disrespectfully of or to slander. And so according to Jewish law, if you blaspheme God, you could be killed. And that's exactly what they're hoping for. That's verse 60. It says, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So people were just coming in giving false testimony. It says, finally two came forward and declared, this fellow said, which by the way is true, he did say, he said it three years earlier. He said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up, said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? It's almost, it's almost like today when you go back in someone's Twitter feed like four or five years and go, see what you said five years ago? Isn't it a little like that? I mean, they're going back because he said it three years ago, but he's talking about the resurrection. So what they're saying is explain yourself. Say something out loud that we can use against you. Jesus, you need, really need to respond for us. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. Angry now, verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And I read that and I thought, really? So you're asking the living God to swear by himself? That's what it says. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. I, I charge you by you. That's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But Jesus is the living God. So when we talk about spiritually unaware, ding, 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 that's this guy. Okay, verse 64 You've said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's what he says to the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. Bingo, we got him. We've got him. We've got him dead to rights, verse 66. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Weren't you taught that the first people to spit on Jesus and punch him in the face were Romans and pagans? It's religious people. The first people to spit on Jesus were the religious people. The first people to punch him in his face weren't the pagans. The first people to turn their backs are religious people. And you, and you think, how have things changed? It says others slapped him, verse 68, and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Every movie I saw, that's what the Roman guards said. No, that's religious people. Now all Jesus' ears, he, he hears uh, insults. I mean, seven days ago, 
what he heard was, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now his ears hear that he deserves death. These religious people, not crowds, religious people are spitting on him, insulting him, hitting him. The high priest tore his robes in, in a sign of disgust, and he's watching this beatdown take place right in front of him, and it's happening in the high priest's house. Like, that's messed up. If you're beating down Jesus in your house, anywhere, but in your house. And once they're done, they take him to a small holding cell in Caiaphas' house that looks exactly like this. That is exactly where Jesus was held after his second trial. Caiaphas' house, there's only three cells. They're side by side. They're about this wide each. He was tied with his hands to the ceiling. Not those ropes. Those are illustrative ropes, but... That's where they, the ropes would have been attached. And he stood there for three hours until sunrise. Probably at this point, he's probably bleeding. He's for sure bruising. You get punched in the face. You're for sure bruising at this point. And he's waiting until sunrise, until the Sanhedrin can be gathered, so that they can pronounce the final verdict and officially sentence him to death. And my question was, if he's standing there for three hours, what's he thinking about? I mean, if I was standing for three hours, I'm like, I'm going to take every last one out. <laughs> That's why I'm not Jesus, right? Because I, I am plotting. We're getting back at people. Not Jesus. I don't think that's what he was thinking about. You know what I think he was thinking about? Standing there for three hours with his hands tied above his head? I think he's thinking about you and me. That's what I think he's thinking about. I think he's thinking about saving you and me. For three hours, he's talking with the Father about the plan to save the likes of this hot mess right here. And I thought, wow. Now, flip to Matthew 27, verse 1. So turn, turn the page for some of you. It says, early in the morning... All the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans now to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and hand him over to Pilate, the governor. Well, that's the third trial. Matthew just says, listen, they got together and they just made their decision and moved on. But Luke actually gives us some more insight as to how this rolled out. I'll put it on the screen behind me. Luke 22 says, at daybreak, at 6 a.m., the council of the elders of the people. So now it's the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the Jewish elders. The larger group. It says, both the chief priests and teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. Now, larger group says, if you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. I've had three hours to think about it. Tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And they all asked him, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. And then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And according to Matthew, this is where they take him and they tie him up and they lead him to Antonius' fortress before Pilate. That's where they take him after three illegal religious trials. 
And the question has to become is, why after three trials do they need to take him to Pilate? I mean, Pilate's Roman. Why, why deliver him there? Well, from a religious standpoint, if you could get somebody convicted of religious blasphemy, you could put them to death if you are a free society. The Jews are not a free society. They're under Roman rule. And blasphemy meant nothing to the Romans. Their whole lifestyle is blasphemous. Like, that's how they live every day. Religious blasphemy was insufficient for execution to the Romans. And so the charges have to be morphed from blasphemy of that Jesus speaking derogatory things against God. They have to be morphed to insurrection. And that's going to come into play next week when we look at the three Roman trials. And so the question we have to ask at this point is, is this the point of the section? Is the, the whole point of this section for us to understand these three religious trials? And I go, I don't think so. I think there's something happening behind the scenes. I think one is really cool information that I wanted to know, but I think there's something at a heart level happening behind the scenes. Behind the scenes is what I'm going to call the breaking of two men. And I want to look at the contrast between Peter and Judas. Look back, Matthew chapter 26, verse 34. Now, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter right after he popped off about how he would never, ever, ever deny Jesus? Jesus says, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me how many times? Three. So we know that the breaking of Peter, if you will, comes before sunrise. And as we've watched these religious trials, we know that the third trial happens at 6 a.m. just as the sun is rising. So interwoven in these religious trials, something else is happening. Peter's downfall is happening. When you were a kid, do you remember playing baseball in your neighborhood? Yeah, in my neighborhood, we loved to play baseball. We would go out in the field behind our houses, and we would play baseball as kids. And, and I wasn't very good, but I played. And the cardinal sin of baseball in my neighborhood was you might take the first ball coming in, and you'll take the first strike looking. Okay, you're fine. And you might even take the second strike looking. But if you take the third pitch coming in. If you take the third strike looking, you're going to be made fun of. <laughs> you might as well get, I'm not saying that's right. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be laughed at. That was my neighborhood, right or wrong. And so you had to know, if you take that third one looking, that's what's going to happen. I think that's what's happened here. Peter takes all three without even putting the bat out there. He takes all three looking, and Peter ends in incredible, incredible shame. See, so far during these trials, we know that Peter is following Jesus from a distance. That's verse 58. It says Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So he's kind of watching this over here from a seat right over here. You can totally see it. Totally here. It's not that far. We were standing there. It's not that far at all. Peter's watching all that's going down. Verse 69. We're going to see strike one. 
It says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she replied, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. So really what happened here, you see who accused him? A sixth grade girl. So he's sitting with guards, like Peter the Rock is sitting with the guards. A sixth grade servant girl walks up and says, I think you're the dude that runs with him. Oh, no, 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 Peter the Rock, no, absolutely not. This is a guy that says, I would never deny Jesus. And he just publicly denies Jesus in front of all the guards and the servant girls. Peter, strike one. Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway, just right outside of that, only about 50 feet, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Another girl accuses him. He pinky swears now. I swear it with some kind of oath. I swear on something. Pinky swear. I don't know the man. Strike two. Verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Now, what's interesting to me is Matthew never seems to name names. But John seems to have no problem with that. He'll name names. He doesn't. He'll sell. You know, in our world, in my neighborhood, it's like snitches got stitches or something like that in my neighborhood. Yeah, he, John's going to sell you out left and right. So when you read John, he says, yeah, this guy who says this to Peter is a relative of Malchus. You know who Malchus was? That's the dude in the garden. Peter pulls out the sword, chops off his ear. The guy who had the bad night talking to his wife. Yeah, a relative of Malchus. John says, this guy looks at him, this relative looks at, at Peter and says, I saw you in the garden. Don't try to deny it. I saw what you did. I know it's you. I can tell by the way you talk. I mean, he's caught dead to rights. And so he has to cover his tracks, right? He's got to throw him off the trail. He begins to curse and swear and says, I don't know the man. Verse 74, immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Strike three. The head drops and shame. Welcome to the breaking of Peter. Welcome to the dark night of the soul for Peter. It's a place of shame. It's a place of regret. It's a place of despair and recognition. It's a place of humility where you have to acknowledge that you've come to the end of yourself and you found yourself wanting. A place where you realize that what you said so confidently and what you said so boldly in front of absolutely everybody that mattered in your life, you couldn't back up. Peter's in a place of incredible, incredible brokenness. In fact, Peter legitimately thinks he's out. Like, Peter really thinks there is no hope for him. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we've read this. You guys have read Mark's gospel, but I think we miss some things. Like, if you read the resurrection story in Mark, 
and there's an angel at the tomb, and the angel talks to the woman in verse 6. It says, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But verse 7 we miss. It says, but go, tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Mark is giving us some insight into the dark night of the soul of Peter after taking a third strike. Peter is convinced he's out. Peter's convinced that Jesus would have just moved on, that Peter would have just found someone else. He is convinced that other people are more spiritual than he is. He is convinced that other people are more qualified than he is. He is convinced that people are more faithful than he is and that he's blown it so much that there is no way that Jesus could still love him. There's no way for me to be restored. There's no way that there would be hope for him. And what's awesome about this story is that when Peter comes to the end of himself, when he enters the dark night of his soul, what does he find? When Peter wakes up surrounded by shame, when he wakes up surrounded by his own guilt and his own regret and his own consequences from his own poor decisions, what does he find? He finds a loving Savior. Peter finds a gospel of restoration. Peter finds a gospel of grace and hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And some might say, well, Kevin, how do you know that? Well, John's account of the resurrection announcements talks about when the ladies come back to the disciples, and the ladies tell them what they found, what do two of the disciples do? They take off running. It's all of a sudden, it's a, it's a track meet for the disciples. And Peter is one of them. Only two take off running. John, the one whom Jesus loved. We all want that title, right? And Peter the one who's outside. He takes off running. Even though Peter messed up, I think he's running because there's a shared longing. Did he really conquer death? I think there's a shared longing that even in his brokenness, he still, even though he's on the outside, he wants to be with Jesus. Peter wants to spend time with Jesus. Peter wants to be reconciled to his Lord, and so he's longing for this witness to a miracle, like the miracle of an empty tomb. And yet John tells us on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, right here in this spot, I stood right here just a couple weeks ago with Pastor Dan. It's, this is where when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection, and they don't know what to do, they're all out fishing. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, Peter. And when Peter sees him, what does he do? He jumps out of the boat. Maybe you should just bring the boat in. I don't know. <laughs> he's not waiting. He's jumping out of his boat, swimming for Jesus. When he gets out, he's like, yeah, Jesus, you, you want me? You still want me? And what does Jesus say? Do you love me? He says, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? I think so, yeah. You know I do. Feed my sheep. 
Peter, get back in the game. Peter, you're not done. It's not over for you. Peter, you're dealing with a Savior who came to seek and save the lost. And by the way, Peter, that's who you are. You feel lost, but you're not. It's time to get back in the game. Lift your head, Peter. Stop fishing out there and get back to fishing for men. Get back in the game. Let your remorse lead you to repentance. Because you, Peter, are not defined by what you've done. What he's saying is, welcome to the grace of God. That in your moment of the dark night of your soul, he finds you in your brokenness. And he wipes away your tears. And he says, now, get in there. Let's go. The sifting by Satan is over. I don't know if you remember that from Luke. That's a really messed up section. I don't like that section because apparently Satan and God have a conversation and Satan's like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to sift your boy. And God's like, mm, okay. I don't like that at all because if I'm the guy, I don't want, but he says he's going to be sifted. And so now what he's saying is, listen, the sifting like wheat, it's over. Peter, you are forgiven. You are restored. What an absolutely beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a picture of the grace of God. It's a picture that some of you need to still see today. Some of you who think it's over. Some of you think I could never get by that. It's not over. Because Peter, though oftentimes spiritually unaware, frequently reacting in the flesh, constantly ready, fire, aim, constantly all passion, no polish, experienced his dark night of the soul, yet most importantly though, he turned to Christ. He runs to Christ. And when he was broken and humbled and he came to the end of himself, he became crucified with Christ. He was no longer he who lives, but it's Christ who lived in him. He gave up his will. He gave up his desires. He gave up his plans. He gave up his preferences. He died to himself. He took up his cross and followed Jesus to the point where the entire early church is influenced and led by that guy. Like, that's the guy who's leading the, the charge? Are you kidding me? Now, with that context, I want to read to you what Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter 5. Because oftentimes we read stuff separated. But when you know what he's going through and you read what he writes, it makes more sense. 1 Peter 5 says, be alert and of sober mind. Don't sleep. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, just like me. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm, steadfast, like a rock, to him be the power forever 
and ever. Amen. Doesn't that make so much more sense after knowing what he's walking through? His remorse led him to repentance, and when he repented, he found the fullness of Christ. But that's only the breaking of the first man. We've got a breaking of a second man in the story. What about Judas? Look at Matthew 27, verse 3. It says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, not repentance, and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. Why do we care? We don't care. We got what we wanted. That's your responsibility, verse 5. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and he went away and hanged himself. When Judas entered his dark night of the soul, he found nothing. He had nothing to turn to. He felt remorse, but there was no repentance. Every single parent in the room knows exactly what we're talking about. Because when your kid does something really foolish, you don't want the I'm sorry. You want them to know what they're sorry for. You want them to be repentant. You don't want to be sorry that they're caught. And every parent said, yeah. <laughs> we, we don't want them sorry because they're caught. We want them to be Sorry for what they did to have a repentant heart. See, he felt remorse, but there was no repentance. He had a faith in Jesus? No, he had no faith in Jesus. He had a rabbi, but no Lord. He had a great moral teacher, but he had no Savior. He had proximity to the things of Christ, but proximity does not save. And if we're really, really honest, proximity doesn't satisfy either. Too many people have gone to church for too long who don't know Jesus and are still unsatisfied with their faith. Proximity will never, ever, ever be able to carry you through your dark night of your soul when it comes. If you're banking on proximity to carry you, you're going to be find, found wanting. Because the question is, do you have a good moral teacher? Do you have a great rabbi? Or do you have a Lord and Savior? Only one carries. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul writes to the church of Corinth. And one of the things I, I struggle with Paul is, Paul's kind of brutal when he writes, isn't it? Like he says things, you're like, easy. <laughs> it feels like you're kind of beating me up. So in this letter, he says some pretty hard things. Paul says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's what Judas experienced. Peter's sorrow led him to repentance. Thanks to faith, not in a rabbi, but in Jesus Christ. Judas' sorrow led him to despair apart from faith in Christ. And I have to ask you, as we close this section about the breaking of two men, what about you? Like, have you experienced your dark night of the soul yet? Because if you think you're going to get through this life without it, 
good luck. I don't know anybody that's able to skate through this life without the dark night of their soul coming their way. And if, if you've got a recovery background, you know what I'm saying. This is hitting rock bottom. See, it's where you come to the end of yourself. Because it's in those places that you begin to discover and recognize your need for Jesus. An acknowledgement that there is a God and you are not him. There is a God and you are not him. Acknowledgement that you need the gospel, not just once when you're 13 around a campfire at, at, on a, or on a mission trip. You need the gospel every day. You need, when you're at the end of yourself every day, you turn to him with everything you are every day. The gospel matters to you every day. In for those who have, what you found is the sweetness of his love. You delight in spiritual awareness. In the life-giving relationship of a living God, you have a restored joy that's no longer based on situations and circumstances and crazy people in your life. None of that can steal your joy. You find a purpose beyond yourself. You find a calling that has nothing to do with your occupation, but this calling becomes your preoccupation. It is above your occupation. That is what is found at the end of yourself. And for those who have not, those who are still spiritually unaware and living in the flesh, Romans says, you should not think too lightly about the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience because those things are there. They're designed to lead you to repentance. The smartest man to ever live outside of Jesus, he writes in Proverbs, he who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond all remedy. Worldly sorrow doesn't turn to repentance. If it doesn't, it's going to give you nothing ever. Friends, what are you waiting for? This morning is the story of two men. It's the breaking of two men. Peter who turned to Christ and Judas who turned to nothing. Peter experienced restoration in a life lived in relationship with God. Judas turned to himself and he found nothing but despair and he took his own life. Friend, it is never ever too late for you. It, even if you've watched that first pitch come in, strike one. And you've watched that second pitch come in, strike two. And a third pitch came in, strike three. And this is where my baseball analogy breaks down because he's still pitching. And you're strike five and six and seven. They just keep coming in. He's like, you should swing that bat. It doesn't matter if your head is down this morning, still in shame. Can I just encourage you that we have a Savior who finds you in your brokenness. He finds you in your shame. He finds you in your guilt and in your sin. And he saves you. He, he restores you. And he redeems you for his glory and for our good. And he does that now and forevermore. Amen.